you are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into the wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, well... <laughs> how many of you grew up with those words playing on your TV sets every night? Hello, my freaky darlings, and welcome back to another episode of APR. These last couple of months have been hectic, with circumstances entirely out of my control that resulted in the tardiness of this episode. Nevertheless, let's just push on. The Twilight Zone was and is a staple in my household, pretty much ever since I can remember. It was just a part of our family's culture. Dinner, Seinfeld, and then the Twilight Zone to end the night. Eventually, we stopped watching Seinfeld, as it was moved one hour later, and so now we had to choose. The choice was easy. Of course, I'm talking about the original series, the one that began in 1959 and ended its run in 1964. There were many attempts after this to recapture the essence that so permeated the original series. The second revival in the 80s was mostly met with mixed reviews. It was different, a product of the time, and it only ran between 1985 and 1989. I never had a true opportunity to really watch the episodes produced in this era, so I cannot give you any insight as to the perceived quality. I know that I must have watched it as a child, because I remember the intro, but nothing else. Naturally, like all those early memories, whatever I saw is now lost. Later on, the third revival was the last one I truly paid attention to, and it was a good one. Don't let the critics fool you. Although some of the stories were retreads, that much is true. Uh, there were a lot of reimaginings, but in between, there were a few original stories that felt like the Twilight Zone. There were 43 episodes in total, and some of them were really good. They really left you thinking. I think it's hilarious how at the time that show did not manage to garner the attention the first two revivals were able to gather, but left the seed that other creators were able to nurture and grow. You can't tell me that Black Mirror doesn't owe its existence in part to the Twilight Zone. It's the same formula, updated to show the newfound horrors of the 21st century. That episode with Bryce Dallas Howard about rating people the same way we rate restaurants and how rampart that could become? Dude, it's a stroke of genius. And that's how the Twilight Zone was viewed. Genius. Too bad Serling never saw that. Rod Serling struggled mightily to get his ideas out there. I sincerely believe that he was born decades too early and was ahead of his time when it came to storytelling. Of course, he didn't do it alone, and the cast of writers that contributed to the success of The Twilight Zone should also be remembered. They fought so hard just to stay relevant, but they were almost always in second or third place when it came to ratings. I honestly don't think most people understood what they were watching and how culturally significant it would become. You don't see anyone trying to reboot I Love Lucy for the 21st century, or The Honeymooners, or whatever was popular at the time. 
though I wonder why no one has bothered to. In any case, I can't really claim to be an expert on what passed for good TV in the late 1950s, early 1960s. I think it's easy to say that most networks were still trying to play it safe and create content that would appeal to most masses. And yet, CBS took a chance on Rod Serling and his idea of a weekly show with episodic content that mostly featured science fiction ideas of a certain radical notion. Where most shows featured a recurring cast of characters that would face artificial conflicts that could easily be solved within 24 minutes, give or take, The Twilight Zone was nothing of the sort. It told self-contained storylines, where the conflict took center stage and few characters walked away scot-free. If you ever dabbled in watching TV from that era, then you most certainly agree with me when I say that Twilight Zone did not belong. I was actually trying to rack my brain thinking if there was anyone out there making content in that time that was even remotely good and it suddenly came to me, Hitchcock. While I won't go as far as to compare the two, you can clearly see that they had similar ideas, primarily to go against the grain and to show their audiences something that would shock them, astound them, and leave them thinking. Hitchcock had an easier time of it, I think. Far easier to get an audience to care about characters when you've got two hours, as opposed to 24 minutes. But despite this, the stories in the Twilight Zone still make you think. You're still invested, and that's what matters. The puzzle, the conflict, it shows itself rather quickly, and it's the mystery that drives us to care. What's going on? Why is this happening? How will it be resolved? If a story can make you ask those questions and then slowly unravel, explain the rules of its setting, periodically breaking said rules, then it will hold your attention, no matter how long or short it is. This is true, and it's imperative that more writers understand this especially when it comes to episodic TV, and the reason being is simple, time is money. There is something else that must also happen, but let's come back to it. Character development can almost take a backseat. World building is what takes center stage. An example, a woman is being accosted by two mysterious figures, you could even call them aliens from another world. A typical story would dwell on who the woman is, what what her backstory is and why it's important to know. A typical story would have us empathize with her. It would want us to feel her plight, to root for her and cheer for her when she's triumphant. A story written for the Twilight Zone with the same premise will most certainly not play out this way. You would still feel empathy for this poor woman who is being accosted but with only 24 minutes, you have to use your time wisely. A brief explanation of the situation is all the build-up you need. Then it becomes a question of what I said before. What is going on? Why is this happening? And how will it be resolved? What the Twilight Zone does so well, it's its use of the literary technique most commonly known as the plot twist. The reason why I say it does it so well is because it does it over and over again, and even if you're expecting it, you still can't see it coming, and once it happens, it's difficult to forget. 
In the aforementioned story I told you before, you can kinda visualize how a battle between two alien creatures and a defenseless woman might take place, but unless you've seen the invaders, then you really have no clue as to how it plays out. Never mind that it features such a brilliant plot twist that's still memorable to this day. Oh, by the way, there's almost no dialogue in that episode, which is also brilliant as it adds to the tension and the atmosphere. And that's another thing that most Twilight Zone episodes do so well. They establish an atmosphere early on, one that carries the mystery and keeps the audience engaged. It can only accomplish this because it only has to do so for 24 minutes. Anything longer than that would mostly call for a change in tone, and this would defeat the purpose. It would no longer feel like the Twilight Zone. Uh, one more thing, and this is crucial. And I can't believe I even have to say this, but if you're telling a story and you establish a mystery, then by the end of your story, you have to solve said mystery. If you've asked questions, then you have to answer them. Mind you, while you can get away with not doing so on certain occasions, these are special circumstances and you really have to weigh your options. If your audience gets invested in a mystery, and gets an exposition dump in the form of one episode that promptly explains it all, and then this strips away the allure of the established world, well, I think you'll get more than frustration. Yeah, I'm looking at you, darling and the Franks, and why outer space, of all places? But I digress. Establishing a mystery and relying on that to drive your story forward is a good idea for the most part, but you do have to follow through on it, and that's easier said than done. We have plenty of examples of writers who have simply chosen not to do that. Now, we know a little about why the Twilight Zone works so well, so let's take a look at a few episodes. We'll do three for now. I do plan on covering all of my favorite episodes, so this will be a sporadic sort of series, peppered here and there between movies and animes. Let's start with Season 3's Episode 1, simply titled 2. We find ourselves in a modern jungle. The truth is we could be anywhere in 1950s America. It looks like a main street that could belong in any small city from those days, but clearly something is off. There's no one left. The streets are empty. The usual sounds of bustling city are long gone. There's an eerie silence that permeates the place. And I'm already intrigued. This dead world tells the story of what used to be. While it does not explicitly say this was America as it was, that's not an unreasonable assumption to make, because like Rod Serling proceeds to tell us in his opening narration, the signposts are written in English so that we may read them more easily, but this place, this world, is not our own. Not yet anyway. And it's in this world where we find our main characters locked in pitch battle, fighting over what? I wonder. This episode is one of those Twilight Zone episodes that's very polarizing. To a lot of fans, present company included, it's one of the best episodes of the Twilight Zone ever made. The other half of the fanbase simply sees it as overrated, simplistic, and not at all interesting. I can exactly disagree with those notions, but sometimes, like I've said many times in the past, simple 
is not bad. Nothing wrong with simple most of the time. If you're telling a riveting story that aims to pull at the heartstrings of your audience, then yeah, you don't want simple. But in this case, you don't need so much window dressing. That isn't to say that we don't have any window dressing in this episode as it is, because the atmosphere is what really sells our plight. The world as it was, from the looks of it, is long gone. The routine, the rules, the lives, all the silly, petty, and uninteresting objectives that we all set for ourselves, none of these things exist in this world. Because, again, the world as we know it is long gone. And I can't tell you how much that excites me. And you as well, because it must excite you. After all, you're here. We see empty streets, remnants of a world that could be ours, and yet it all feels so very alien. In short, the atmosphere is essential, critical to this story, as we're about to see. It's hard to convey these types of emotions with written words, and yet someone must have done so in order to properly explain the scene, to set it, and to bring it to life. Our characters as a whole don't seem to be at all too interesting by themselves. We see a woman scavenging through the remains, and immediately we know what she's looking for. She wants food. At the same time, when she walks by the storefront, we see a dress, a relic of their past, and this catches her eye. Right away, we can assume a few things about her. She wasn't born into this world. She's a survivor. She remembers the old ways, and judging by her clothing, she might be partially responsible for her current state of affairs. A soldier of a foreign country left behind in a strange land after the war became pointless, when her values no longer matter, when her country ceased to exist. When she makes her way into a restaurant, the music crescendos, and we see that she finds a canned of food, but initially has no way of opening. We see a shadow, and the camera moves, and a man shows up. His uniform is different. Perhaps he's a member of the local militia, or a soldier of another foreign nation and they just happen to be fighting over this land. The two of them fight but of course he gets the upper hand and knocks her out, albeit with a look of concern, as if he didn't want to do it. He stares at her. The female soldier is played by Elizabeth Montgomery, who was quite the looker in her day. She's the lady from Bewitch, in case you need a proper mental image. The man gets the can open and starts to eat the chicken leg inside of it. As he walks out and walks about, it's the setting that gives us more details as to what happened, and it's all the worst fears of the Cold War realized. By the way, I didn't write it in my notes, but the man is played by Charles Bronson. He was mostly famous for Death Wish. He decides to return to the restaurant where he fought the woman, and finds her still out cold, still looking pretty. He dumps water on her to wake her up, and she does. He speaks, and it's the first lines of dialogue we've had in the whole episode. Nine minutes in, and this is the first time anyone has spoken. He declares that he doesn't want to fight anymore, that it's pointless. But she doesn't seem to understand him. Further cementing the idea 
that they speak a different language. There is no reason for them to fight anymore, and I wonder if there ever was. He declares to no one in particular that there is now peace, because there is no one left. I like that. He leaves the chicken, which is what was inside the can, and promptly walks out. She jumps on it immediately, eating the remainder of it. He makes his way to a barber shop and looks at himself, probably thinking it's time for a shave. I know I'm supposed to be talking about the characters, but the whole setting of this episode gives off a Fallout vibe, and I'm very much here for it. I love it. I just love the whole aesthetic of this episode. Uh, back to our main character, he starts to shave and realizes he's not alone. The female soldier has followed him. She's looking at herself in the mirror. She's also very, very dirty. I like the giant knife she's carrying around her belt as well. We can see she's not exactly ready to form an alliance with her one-time enemy. He doesn't seem to care. He tosses her a bar of soap while he goes about his business and she looks in the mirror. Looks like it's been a while. Her eyes are sunken with bags underneath them. Sleep may be hard to come by in this new world. They both finish their business and they go outside. The mood has changed and the two, without saying a word, without being able to understand each other, mind you, they take a walk, a stroll down Main Street, just like people used to do before. They walk by a movie theater and it looks like a romantic movie was playing just before the bombs fell, just before their world ended. He looks at her and we get the slightest impression that he might be lonely, that she might be lonely. The illusion is quickly broken when they walk by the propaganda posters and they're reminded of the world they used to belong to. They're enemies. It's that simple. They both grab rifles that are just there and point them at each other. Still, he puts down his rifle first because he doesn't want to fight anymore. Because again, there is no reason to. They both walk by the pretty dress we saw at the beginning. He speaks again, this time voicing what we all think. Pretty. She doesn't say anything at first, but then replies with Prekrasny. He tells her to put it on, and she goes inside a building to do so, a recruitment office. She sees the propaganda again, and she feels she can't betray her country. She grabs the rifle in the room, goes outside to where our male protagonist is sitting down, and shoots at him, missing. He looks back at her, feeling betrayed. He slinks away, and the mood is somber. The bread and butter of any good Twilight Zone episode is a twist. The moment you realize that not everything is as it seems. That the most obvious of the obvious seem to escape you. The twist in this episode is definitely unexpected. And it ends in a manner that is not common for most Twilight Zone episodes. That much is a given. I mean, it's a twist. It's supposed to come out of nowhere. I'm debating as to whether I should tell you or not. Because if you're a longtime fan of this show like me then you know how it ends, so say it. 
And if you can't quite remember, why spoil it for you? But let's just leave it at that. Now, in no particular order, let's talk about one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone. One of the best stories ever told within a half an hour span. Let's talk about the monsters are due on Maple Street. To this day, I still find myself thinking about this story. It's still relevant, now more than ever. This episode exposes one of my biggest fears. It fills me with dread, and it inspires all sorts of dreadful behavior. Let's not get ahead of ourselves just yet. Rather, let's start at the beginning. This episode begins with a simple Saturday afternoon in an ordinary neighborhood. Nothing special about the street, the date, or the people. That's what makes it so harrowing. This could take place anywhere. That's the premise. Nothing wild, nothing crazy, and it's what makes the rest of the story work so well. Like I said, there's nothing too crazy about the setting of this place. It's a street in a small town, it's the 1950s, and it's an image that we can all kind of place. Kids playing in the park, people barbecuing, the smell of hot dogs, soda pop, freshly cut grass. It's a Saturday, so the kids are at home and people are out and about with their chores and their hobbies. It's at this moment that the residents of Maple Street see an item in the sky and that's all the atmosphere we need. A man replaces a light bulb, but the light won't come on. A woman is trying to make a phone call, but it's not working. Nothing that requires electricity is working. There is no power on the street and phones are not working, and the neighbors are starting to get concerned. Again, it really is all the atmosphere we need, because this is where the story truly starts. The neighbors get together as dust begins to fall, and that is coming. The radios are not working, there's really no way to contact anyone outside the neighborhood. There's no one that truly stands out in this episode, yeah, there were characters with names, but none of them truly mattered in the story. They were placemats, just so that we could follow it along. A kid speaks up, starts talking about aliens from the sky. This whole sequence is straight out of a 1950s monster movie, with a kid that speaks out to the danger and how no one listens to him, though that's not the case here. As we can see, the adults are rattled at the suggestion that an alien is behind their predicament, and it only gets worse. One of the neighbors goes out to the window real quick. He goes outside to try to start his car, and in front of all the neighbors, the car comes to life, with no intervention from anyone. This one act causes a stir with the group, and they begin to ask him how his car started to work, why it's his car the only car that starts when none of the other vehicles are working at the moment. While they're having their argument, the car engine dies, and it only raises the tension that they all feel. Why did it come back to life? And why did it die? The more pressing question becomes who's responsible behind this sudden turn of events. 
more and more accusations are thrown about and now we have a monster escape group a scapegoat that the whole group can attack and vent out their frustrations at the sun has set and night has fallen and what once was an anxious sensation is about to turn into mass hysteria as the lights are still not coming on and no one knows what to do or what's causing it the kid's story about invaders from outer space has really riled them up and like i said they're looking for a scapegoat the voice of reason is still here and it's the only thing that's kept them from turning on one another there must be a rational explanation all we have to do is keep calm it's not too surprising to see how those words lose their effect as fear takes hold of all of them a man is coming down the streets in the tension the terror is now all too real one of the neighbors yells at him to stop to identify himself and before anything else happens he shoots him where did that gun come from in the first place dude just kind of shows up with it they make their way to the now lifeless body and it's their neighbor it's one of them and he's gone dead now the lights are coming on and off in random houses and the distress reaches its fever pitch they start pointing fingers at each other starting with the kid yelling things like he knew what was going to happen he caused all of it he's the monster music doesn't help at all they all turn on one another and as they turn on one another the camera pans out just like before there's a chance you haven't seen this episode or more than likely that you have seen this episode but it's been so long that you don't remember the twist so i won't spoil that here for you all i'm gonna say is that this episode this twist is one of the most memorable endings in tv history it's what you think of when you think of the twilight zone and it's as relevant today as it was when it originally aired after all as much as society has changed in the last 50 60 years people are still people and they still behave the way you expect people to behave in stressful situations more on this later following a similar premise the final episode i want to bring to light for now is titled the midnight sun and to be honest at first it looks like there's nothing too interesting about this episode we see a woman painting she looks outside and we see an odd looking sun staring back at her it's odd because even though the image isn't black and white it's not the small white dot we're all accustomed to it looks different it looks bigger the camera pans out to the thermometer and we see that the temperature is high it looks like they're going through a heat wave of sorts her paintings feature a skyline and a large sun in the center she grabs a smoke and this is of note because this was before they limited the amount of exposure they used to give smoking on network tv before the effects of long-term smoking really became apparent to the public people used to smoke on tv all the time they still do but not like before she gets a drink of water from a glass jar and the whole little apartment looks like they ripped it off a 1950s catalog the fridge the sink the stove 
all kitschy with the aesthetic of the time. Even though the episode might take place in another universe, a parallel dimension, you can't really escape the look of the times. We hear a knock on the door and when she answers the door, it's a little girl asking for water. Before our female protagonist can answer, the little girl's father shows up and tells her, and by extension, us, that the family is moving to Toronto, that the highways are packed, and that there is a gas shortage. Something bad is happening, but the story is not ready to tell us what just yet. It's keeping us in suspense for the moment. Everyone in the apartment complex is gone now. It's just our two ladies, our little painter, and the landlord, an older lady who's decided to stay as well. They all want this heat wave to end. They want coolness. They want shade. The streets are empty. There is no one here anymore. And we finally understand. We get the standard introduction to the episode, delivered in typical fashion by Mr. Serling himself. The earth is moving closer and closer to the sun. It's gonna get hotter and hotter. And this world is doomed. This is the eve of the end. And as always, it's delivered expertly. Our painter's name is Norma. I've really focused on names for most of our protagonists since, for the most part, the names didn't really matter. And two, the characters didn't even have names. In Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, yeah, the characters had names, but it wasn't about the individuals. It was about their reactions and how their society crumbled. This episode is a lot more personal, focusing exclusively on the last moments of these two women. Norma has gone to get food, the world has descended into chaos, with the end of everything in plain sight. They are all thirsty, and everyone is sweating. I gotta add this from the notes. Um, it says, uh, this is straight from my notes, even though the image is in black and white, she's very pretty. <laughs> Just a small glimpse into what some of my notes look like. Anywho, the radio comes on and we get more info as to the state of things. The police force has disbanded. No one is left to protect normal citizens. Uh, citizens. I'm going to leave that in. The heat is getting worse. The radio man goes off script. No longer calm and collected. His tone changes because he knows that there is no one left to panic. Most people have gone north seeking colder climates. Norma shares some of her cold water with Mrs. Bronson, the older landlady that has decided to stay with Norma in the now empty building. The power goes out and the radio and the fans stop. With no one maintaining the power grid, blackouts are the standard. The situation is dire. The heat is increasing and since they're alone, they wear nightgowns. I don't know where a man shows up and tries to get in their apartment. Norma threatens him with a gun. He pretends to leave. And then the older lady opens the door and he busts in. He holds them at gunpoint and drinks most of their water. I don't know where Norma tries to wrestle the gun away from him. I just saw this episode again a few days ago. And I can't for the life of me remember if he drops the gun or she actually succeeds in taking it from him. The looter starts to talk about his wife, how he's lost everything, and we're supposed to be sympathetic, but it doesn't really land. 
he broke in there with a gun and would have harmed them had the situation called for it. He begs for forgiveness and Norma, oddly enough, forgives him. You know, he drank their water. He leaves the apartment building. Norma comforts Mrs. Bronson, who's pretty shaken up about the whole ordeal. She just lays down on the floor, unresponsive, and now Norma is all alone. The scene shifts and the heat has gotten even worse. So bad now that we see the paint start to run off the canvas. And the scene shifts again. This episode ends, well, like most Twilight Zone episode ends, uh, like most of them end. With a monologue at the end that has Rod Serling comment on an interesting tidbit about the story. You could say that the twist of this episode is predictable. And I can agree with that to a certain extent. But it still comes out of left field. And it still stays with you. Leaving you to wonder if their original fate really was worse compared to what is actually coming. Once again, not going to spoil it for you. If you want to rel relive them. Ugh. If you want to relive them or watch them for the first time, you can do that. I would absolutely recommend that you do that, actually. So why did I like these episodes? Why start with these three? Well, there's a lot of episodes of The Twilight Zone that I like. I've seen most, but there is a whole season I've never seen. Because for whatever reasons, they never did air it on network TV. It's not in Netflix or Hulu either. I've seen it for sale on several places, so at some point I will check those out. The truth is that this is more than likely going to be the first in a long series of Twilight Zone episodes. Not that the podcast is going to focus exclusively on that, but I do want to cover all of my favorites and bring them to life. And perhaps share them again with those who have but a vague memory of what they were. So why did I like these episodes? Well. Let's talk a little bit about spoilers. Uh, when it comes to the episode title 2, I like the fact that they were all alone. That it felt like Fallout. That even though their world ended, they still had to carry on and live. And prioritize the things that are truly important. Not flag or country or honor, but hope, family, and companionship. For an episode that was very silent, it said a lot about the world it was made in. And looking back on it, it was the only way they could deliver messages like that without censorship. Rod Serling and all the writers that were involved made deliberate choices about what their episodes were about. Choices that made their stories timeless. The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street is a prime example of that. Written so many years ago, it still highlights the most destructive parts of humanity in crisis. And the way the story breaks down should be something that's taught in writing classes to this day. I don't know if it is, but it should be. There are a lot of other stories that capture that kind of mass hysteria. Movies like The Mist that feature real monsters, as well as the monsters we turn into, remind me of this episode and the fact that it was written before. It still gets me to this day. Like I said, still fills me with dread. Because... The times may have changed, but the people remain the same. And in time of crisis, they will show you who they really are. Let's just hope they're good people. The Midnight Sun is the most generic of the two, featuring a simple story that, again, 
is about the nature of man in the direst of times. Here we see the opposite. We see Norma and Mrs. Bronson try to ride the apparent apocalypse, and even though they could have harmed the stranger that did want to harm them, they chose to let him go. Not something most people would do. And the ending and the fact that it was a dream and that their reality was just as bad, if not worse, makes for a great ending. And it covers a scenario that I've been obsessed with over the last couple of weeks. In fact, I would like to write a whole series of novels that use a similar premise. I spent a good amount of time thinking about this one. I wrote a good chunk of this episode in one go. And then I kind of lost interest and I saved it. I left it sitting there with the idea that I would revisit it again. And I'm glad that I did. I love this show from the first time that I watched it. And to this day, I still sit down and enjoy it. There are so many good episodes and I encourage you all to revisit these episodes. This show pretty much changed the game forever. There was TV before the Twilight Zone and TV afterwards. If you stuck around to the end, I sincerely thank you for all the support. The ride's just getting started. It's been a lot of work, but like I've said many times, I enjoy it all. If you want more, go ahead and listen to our previous episodes. I would say support us on Patreon, but we don't have a Patreon, so all the content we have is available for all. No gates here. Take care of yourselves, my fellow travelers, and beware of the wasteland.